Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 9th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. And also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fellowspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, you got it right. Because <laughs> I, I wrote a note to myself. I, wrote <laughs> I can't guarantee in the future I'll always get it right. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Kathleen Chalfant is is visiting with us via Zoom. Kathleen's performances on stage, screen, television have garnered her praise and acclaim from critics and audiences alike. We know her from uh, things such as wit. We know her from Angels in America, we, Racing Demon, Dance With Me, A Woman of the World. Uh, for Peter Pan on her 70th birthday, A Walk in the mm. Woods, I mean... The list goes on and on. It does. It does. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. So tell me, how did you get uh, from a young Kathleen Chalfant? Where did you hail from and how did you get from where you are to so many wonderful productions? Lucky, I guess. Um, my I, uh, Chalfant is my husband's name. I was married when I was 21, and it was odd that I decided to take his name. I mean, I think it's some hmm. acting thing that you run away from, from yourself. Um, I was born Kathleen Bishop in San Francisco, California, and I grew up all over the West Coast, um, as far north as Eureka, as far west as Honolulu. Hmm. And uh, from the sixth grade to the twelfth grade in Oakland, California. Um, all right. So during that sixth to twelfth grade, are you acting at all? Yes, I was acting in um, a local uh, uh, um, community theater group in Alameda. How wonderful! California, and I was in all in all the school plays. Good for you. That's fun. <laughs> uh, so an early start, no question about that. But now you're doing uh, The Year of Magical Thinking, or you did it, and um, we're going to see it again, uh, thanks to our electronic marbles. So how did it happen? Um, uh, I've, let's see, how did it happen? Um, the Keen Company, Johnny, uh, Jonathan Silverstein, who's the artistic director, asked me if I wanted to do it because he remembered that I'd said when it, uh, before it came to Broadway that it was something I'd always wanted to do. I'm from California, and I've been um, completely uh, taken by Joan Didion's writing since the uh, first time I ever read anything. Huh. It sounds and feels like California to me. <laughs> and I realize that we have touched all the same places, Sacramento, Hawaii, um, the Bay Area, and ended up, both of us, having our professional lives in New York. 
Um, mm-hmm. And when I read The Year of Magical Thinking, I could feel the rhythms of it. And when I heard that it was coming to um, Broadway, I did something which I've never done before, which is that I wrote to David Hare. I'd been in his play Racing Demon at Lincoln Center. Uh-huh. And I wrote to him and said, you know, I've never done this before, but I think I should play this part because I understand it. Um, and he wrote back, to, and I said, I'm not sure you'll remember me. And he sweetly wrote back and said he did, in fact, remember me, but that they'd already cast the part, and it was Vanessa. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that if I were taking a play to Broadway, mm-hmm. <laughs> between me and Vanessa Redgrave, I too would choose Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, all right. Uh, so, did it become part of your bucket list? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see her do it? I did. Uh-huh. Uh, and is it very hard to do a play like that after seeing someone else do it uh, and not repeat what indeed she did? In this case, not so much because we have such different uh, uh, approaches to it. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't explain in any sort of cogent way what those differences are but it also because it, it's um such personal material i think that anyone who does it brings themselves to it mm. which brings up a good point um yeah i'm always in awe when performers can cry uh whenever they need to cry in a play and i know that the uh, concept is that you think of something terrible that happened to you and that's what gets the tears flowing um so uh this must be one where this has to happen that, uh because you are talking about the death of a spouse a beloved spouse and a daughter yes on, on mother's day we we're talking about it but yeah. i think the point of this is that she doesn't cry go on the it's called the year of magical thinking and it is it is the way that this person protects themselves from the unimaginable mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and if you began it's one if you began to cry you would never stop i can appreciate that um mm. Speaking of uh, plays that deal with death, um, I know, Kathleen, that you were involved in something extraordinary in 2019, which was Novenas for a Lost Hospital. And I I thought maybe you could talk about that because it really, I think it's fair to say that it was quite extraordinary. That was an extraordinary project uh, made by the wonderful Rattlestick Theater. Daniela Topol, who is the artistic director of the theater, has um, made it her mission to weave the theater into the life of the neighborhood. And nothing could be uh, more important in that neighborhood, in the West Village, than uh, St. Vincent's Hospital and the history of it Uh, mm. and the death of it. Mm. Right, right. That play was about all of those things and managed also to include the Haitian Revolution, which was a very good thing to have in it. Uh, uh, well, it was a, a, a site-specific production, which started out in, a, in, a, in an enclosed garden 
uh, in the West Village, and then it moved on, and I guess eventually ended up at the what is now the AIDS Memorial Park, and just it, opposite where St. Vincent's used to be located. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, it was, and we we walked we walked from the theater to the AIDS Memorial and invited people to remember. Uh, remember people they'd lost in the shadow in what was really the ghost of St. Vincent's Hospital. We used to say wickedly that we thought if we walked around it three times backwards, maybe the apartments would fall. Uh, uh. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, for those of our listeners who don't know what we're talking about, indeed, um, a hospital was replaced by condominiums. So it's shocking that St. Vincent's uh, <laughs> is just not there. And it's, yeah. it's just a huge hole that's left in that part of the city. Sure, sure. So um, it, somebody told you somewhere along the way, listen, we got this play and it's written by a grammar school teacher in Georgia. Uh, would you read it? Uh, what's your uh, is that how it happened uh, that wit came into your life? <laughs> that isn't how it, it's the story. The story of wit. What happened? was um, that um, uh, my friend <clears throat> Derek Anson Jones, who has, who has died now, Derek and I were uh, friends. We'd met at the New York Theater Workshop. And then um, I was doing, I was in a production of Henry V in the park that Doug Hughes was directing. And Derek uh, was the um, uh, assistant director. And he came to me, and he had this play, and he said, Kathy, would you just ever read this play and see if it might be interesting to you? It was written by a friend of mine. Ah. And so I read Wit, and I assumed that the part that he wanted me to think about was the part that Helen Stenborg played in the end. Uh Because Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine that you would have this play and not have, you know, somebody in mind. And so I didn't, you know, it was one of those sort of awkward conversations. And I said, well, so Derek, um, you know, who, and he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's Vivian. <laughs> Vivian. And that was just at the time that my brother, my, my older, he was 14 years older, and he was my glamorous gay brother, yeah. was dying of uh, cancer, n- not AIDS, but it yeah. was an immune-related cancer, and he was visiting us. So I gave him the play to read, and he came downstairs um, and said, um, you know, if anyone ever asks you to do this play, you better do it. <laughs> and I was what my brother told me, so wow. <laughs> I did, and that's how it happened uh, soon after... Uh, and at the same time that Derek gave me the play, he'd given it to Doug Hughes. And soon after, Doug became the artistic director at the Long Wharf and decided that he wanted to open the the small theater at the Long Wharf with this play and asked me to do it. And when it was, then, then he did something extraordinary, which was when it was successful and coming to New York, he said, Doug Hughes said, you can't have, because he had the rights for the Long Wharf, you have to do this play with Kathleen Chalfant. Mm. Ah. And it was a, an amazing, that was one of the extraordinary things. The other extraordinary thing was that Derek um, had been, Derek was then uh, 
40, I think, though he looked about 18. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, had been HIV positive since his uh, middle 20s. Mm. And he was one of those people for whom the, the uh, cocktail was working. And he didn't tell anybody that he was HIV positive because, you know, he said, I'm an African-American um, gay mm. Uh, director, so all we need now is to know. So he didn't tell anyone uh, except Dennis O'Hare, who was his his partner. But once we got sort of, a, and so Derek had a sense of immortal of mortality that we didn't ever know about, and it was Derek who made the who who insisted upon the spectacular ending of Wit. Uh huh. <laughs> Um, uh, was that a problem for you? No, uh, the spectacular ending. Eyes and you know, if I thought if I couldn't see the audience, then they couldn't see me. Uh. <laughs> I, do, I do have to. I'm for the people who die. Was naked briefly at the end of mm-hmm. my, in my fifties, and I have to say that one of the things that kept happening over and over, which was a little disturbing, was that a- after after the play, you go out the stage door. Yeah. And fairly often there would be middle-aged uh, male doctors, the play isn't very nice about doctors, uh, who would say to me, you are so brave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's very clear what they mm-hmm. were referring to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, and the play, um, Maggie Edson, Maggie Edson, uh, is a brilliant woman, and she and Derek were uh, uh, f- friends from high school. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. And, and she ended up being uh, um, she she had degree she had a degree in English literature and a degree in um, uh, she's in Italian literature as well. I mean, she was a, is a brilliant woman, but she decided that she wanted to teach. Um, elementary school at the first and second grade level because it was so exciting to her to watch people learn to read. Mm-hmm. And Maggie wrote the play as a as a teaching tool, really. As a teaching tool. Wow. Uh, do Do you think we'll ever see another play from her? No. Mm-hmm. She. Other place she wrote another play about country music and nobody liked it much, so she didn't. She's got other fish to fry. <laughs> Isn't that something? Isn't that something? All right, that year you won every award that everybody could possibly think of, except the Tony because the play didn't come to Broadway. Uh, was there any talk about moving it to Broadway? Oh gosh, don't you, I'm, Peter? Don't you remember all that? Are you just? I don't. I oh, don't. God, all right, well, I'm sure maybe. Can, oh, go ahead. Can lead his son. Yeah. To go to the? Is it the? Is it the, the? No, it was supposed to go to the Helen Hayes, which was owned right. by Marty Markinson. And um, Marty read it. <laughs> he has since uh, allowed us how he maybe made a mistake. He read it and said, no, this is too depressing. No, we can't have it on Broadway. And I think um, there was also, uh, there were a couple of big British plays coming. And I think there was a certain amount of pressure so that the big producers weren't interested in, in bringing it to Broadway. Um, the thing about the play is that it was a little bit its history because every time somebody read it, 
half the people would say, oh, God, this is wonderful. By the time it got to me, it had already been, it had already won a bunch of prizes um, on the West Coast. And then they'd send it around to all the regional theaters. And then they'd say, well, I don't know, this is a play about a 50-year-old woman dying of um, ovarian cancer. And when it's not about that, it's about, um, it's about um, you know, John Donne. So I don't think we'll do this play. Um, mm, mm. So that's essentially what happened and why it didn't go to Broadway. But, but also now uh, this part of my memory is not completely clear, but what, something went in instead that was a complete flop. Yes. Sorry. Was it was it honk? Is it was that? I I honestly don't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to I look at yeah. that. I'm sure you don't remember. <laughs> I believe that totally. <laughs> I fully understand. So, uh, of course, most of us got to know you from Angels in America, uh, where you certainly set up uh, that great punchline about, well, if I were a hairdresser, it would be a lucky day. Um, Mel Brooks said that's the funniest line he ever heard on stage. Did he ever, uh, in fact, did you ever meet him? And did he ever talk to you about that? I didn't know. He didn't ever talk to me. He, um, they, he, there, we lived then in the West village on, on um, the corner of West fourth street and West 11th next door to the house where he had, where they lived, but they weren't there when we were there. I so see. I never met Mel Brooks. I'm, in fact, I never heard that. I'm glad. <laughs> that the first time we said it, Stephen and I, the first time that happened in front of an audience and the show stopped, we were as surprised as anybody because we didn't know that funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I may slip in, actually, I found the uh, the uh, the title of the play that went into the haze. Uh, it, it was not honk; it was squonk. Squonk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, that well-known <laughs> squonk. With John Dunn, so it was a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let me ask about uh, Angels in America. Um, uh, tell me. Uh, about your experience with that, uh, I, I've heard stories, and maybe you can confirm this, that, uh, that uh, during the process of bringing Angels in America to Broadway, um, this, the script was not complete. Is, is that true, and that you guys were constantly reworking stuff? Or tell us about that whole process and opening up such an uh, epic two-part thing on Broadway. Well, it went, you know, I was first, uh, had my first, uh, reading of any part of Angels in America was in the fall of 1988. Mm. And, wow. we, and I let Ellen McLaughlin and I, who were the last people from the original company to leave the show, left in uh, 1994. So it was six years and Ellen and Stephen had been involved before that. So in uh, 1988, um, most of Millennium Approaches was written. Uh, the scenes we read that day, uh, many, I mean, the, the Rebbe's speech was always there and the scene, I mean, from my point of view, and the scene from with the doctor and Roy and that first Roy, wonderful Roy scene with the telephone and all like that. So Millennium Approaches was in pretty uh, good shape. Um, Paris Troika was always in flux and I believe continues to be in flux. I think uh -huh. every time, you know, all the major productions have had rewrite, Tony's done rewrites. Mm. 
And did yeah, you exp- we did were, you go ahead? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And yes, all the time there were things coming in and going out, and you know, because it was long. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> did you think it was uh, too long? Did you think it was going to be the success that it turned out to be? Did you believe in it? Were you surprised? Everybody knew. I think that the certainly that f- we all knew that it was something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Whether it was ever going to be a success was always a, a, a success on Broadway and all that was always a question. And in fact, the only reason that it came to Broadway was because it was at the National Theater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one from New York, we were doing all the developmental work in Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum for y- years. You know, we would go and spend a couple months working on the play and we always talked about it as our day job. Um, hmm. um, and no one from uh, the East Coast press would come and see it. But then it was, then Millennium Approaches was on at the National and everybody, you know, Frank and everybody went racing over and said, oh my God, isn't this? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Odd how that works. And yeah. overnight success. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then after that, they came to Los Angeles and saw... The production, um, the production is that most of which, most of which, some of which, mm-hmm. uh, eventually came to Broadway, was the big production of both parts of the play at the Taper in, I forget, 1992, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Playing Ethel Rosenberg, um, yeah. Did you remember Ethel Rosenberg uh, as a child? Did that name mean anything to you as a child? Yes, my my I uh, my family was was uh, quite uh, political. I suppose it was a mixed marriage in a way. We had my very uh, 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 liberal mother and brother on the one hand, and my father who had started as a as a Roosevelt uh, Democrat and was moving far to the le- uh, to the right. So mm-hmm. there was lots and lots of political talk. Sorry, I'm about to sneeze. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether. Uh, we so do it. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, I, I remembered, you know, and and I grew up in California, and the all the House on American Activities Committee. There were lots and lots of those uh, 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 meetings in California. So yes, I did know about the Rosenbergs, and never, of course, dreaming that you would eventually play her someday. Needless to say, oh. um, <laughs> um, did uh, did you do any research about her and find out things that uh, surprised you when you did the research? Well, there were the thing that was most surprising was that she was a singer. Look at that. Which, mm. I, I don't know if it's in the play, but she and Julius, that's how they, she would sing to him in prison. Wow. Wow. <laughs> There's Good a musical Lord. waiting to happen. Yeah, wow. Isn't that something? <laughs> wow. Hmm. Hmm. When did you feel that, uh, I'll understand uh, many performers feel that this has yet to happen, but when did you feel that, um, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. I do not have to take a day job anymore. This is it. I am now officially arrived to the point where at least I am going to be a working actress. I, it happened a, 
a, a couple of times. Good. <laughs> by, by the time, by the time of, well, I was working pretty regularly before Angels. We came to New York in 1973, and I was 28, mm-hmm. and believed that I was far too old ever. You know, it was over. Yep. Yep. Much was going to happen, but. I went to study with Wynne Hanman anyway. He accepted me in his class. I'm still not sure why. Um, and then began working uh, off and on. I had two little children then, too, and was married to my wonderfully supportive husband who has stuck with me through thick and thin through all this. Um, but I was working pretty regularly by... 1980. Well, I, I was in a, a show at, at the uh, American Place um, called Jules Pfeiffer's Hold Me. Mm-hmm. That was a, a, an actual year of working without stopping, going from the American Place, and then we went to the West Side Arts, and then to Los Angeles, and then to Philadelphia, and I, I decided that was I should probably go home on account of having children at home. Uh. You mentioned Win Handman, who died just over a year ago. I know. Um, yeah. That must have been quite a blow for you, I, I would imagine. It was. It was. He was an, an, an amazing uh, teacher and was one of those uh, kind of seminal figures. All sorts of people grew out of, and he, he taught all sorts of wonderful teachers. My my oldest friend in New York is K. Michael Patton, who was um, at, uh, I think, 19, <laughs> the casting director at the American Place. And we met um, when she would take over classes from Wynn sometimes. And she is now the best teacher of anything I know and teaches acting uh, in New York. So that's only one of Wynn's of the you know the the seeds that grew from Wynn's work sure hmm. wow so uh this uh this fundraiser at the at the keen company the year of magical thinking is going to be this thursday may 13th uh you can get it through sunday may 16th just uh those couple of days and it is a fundraiser for keen as we had mentioned and it's uh 25 dollars uh which is uh, a, a an amazing price for what we're what what you can see for for that event and I'd like to say, I'd just like to urge people to support the Keen Company. The Keen Company is one of those tiny dual companies in New York City that's yes. about wonderful work, one thing after another, and has been doing um, exciting radio work uh, during the pandemic. So I'm very glad to be able to help in any way I can. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. 
Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something that only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone's online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know that there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part about it is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address that's shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, a phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN in the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio and get three extra months for free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash broadwayradio. Go to expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio to learn more. And thanks so much to ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. Okay, so we have uh, some news out of Broadway this week. And we are hearing that there is a new play coming to the August Wilson called Passover. And uh, one of our listeners, Tim Black, has uh, seen a production of this in Denver. So, Tim, thanks for jumping on quickly. Yeah, thanks. Tell us about when you saw uh, Passover in, in Denver. What, what, what was it? You know, what can we expect to see here uh, at the August? So, yeah, I saw Passover um, here in Denver in late 2019 um, at, a, at um, a small theater company um, um, here in Denver. And um, basically, it's a play. I'll read you a quick little quote from it mm-hmm. says from the director here in Denver. Um, it's an inside peek into two homeless African-American men passing their time chilling on corners, stopped and frisked, angry and frustrated, um. dreaming of a better life, a riff on waiting for Godot and the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2020, 2012. Um, yeah. So allow yourself to take a look into and inside a peek into. So, um, yeah, it's like, about two African-American men on a corner and um, please show up. Um, and there's definitely a, a lot of heated conversation. Um, it was really well done by the two actors here in Denver at the curious theater company. Um, and, uh, you know, afterwards they had like a talk back with the, with community members um, at the theater and the conversation was, um, was really heavy about, um, you know, just about the racial relations at the time, because uh, this was at the end of 2019. So this was before, you know, all the riots in 2020. Um, but a really poignant play on um, how uh, police brutality and African-American men um, in this country have gotten really out of control. So you say it was a two-hander, just uh, in a no. There's a, a cop, at least, right? Uh, it's a cop. So yeah, there's a, there's a police officer and then the two black men. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the main focus of the play. Okay. Do we get the impression that um, under better circumstances that these guys could have really had a, um, fine lives and productive lives? Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. Absolutely. It's yep. just something went wrong and they just couldn't rebound. Yeah. Uh, so do they like each other? Um, you know, the, the two characters in Waiting for Godot do have their issues. Um, do, do they yeah. like each other? Um, I can't really recall. I think they do. I think that they, um, they kind of riff off of each other a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's like moments of um, like where they like each other and moments where they're, um, where they're angry. Um, but I think more angry at just the way that life has turned out for them, not really each other. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. What's, what's interesting to me though, a three character play in a, a rather big Broadway theater. Um, the August Wilson is not small and um, I'm surprised that that's uh, where they chose to go. Yeah. Um, August Wilson's 1228 seats. And that's the thing that I was thinking as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, traditionally wow. musicals plays there. God knows, um, certainly plays have played there. But uh, nevertheless, we we do think of it now as, well, there are almost all musical houses now. Uh, places that like the what was the Plymouth Theater and, and the Royale, which usually hosted plays, you know, certainly now host musicals. Well, but may, maybe perhaps they're, they're assuming that there might still be need for some social distancing. Ah, good for you, Michael. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right. Good. Yeah. Look at that. I'm thinking things are really going to get back to normal. Boy, am I naive. <laughs> Boy, am I naive. Well, it's, well, on a related note, some people have said uh, half-jokingly online that, that maybe that six should play at the uh, at the uh. Gershwin. And other, and other people were like, well, that's ridiculous. But then other people were like, well, no, because it, they could start there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if, if people have to be sitting every four seats apart or whatever. And, and you know, it, it's, uh, it sounds like it would be a, pretty easy sure. show to move needless to say <laughs> um so, so yeah i mean then this is what this is yeah, the new normal yeah, that's a good point the, michael uh, okay. and i'm i'm um i'm sorry i didn't think of that but no matter what the configuration is in the theater nobody's going to be surprised and saying what's going on here um if indeed we do have to be every four <laughs> seats apart everybody knows and understands there was there was an interesting post on all that chat about a guy who um immediately bought a ticket to chicago um for the first performance on september 4th and um, this really uh, uh, made an impression on me because it shows how very much some people are, are ready to get back in the theater under any circumstances. I dare say, and I'm guessing, but I don't think it's uh, a wild guess, that he's seen Chicago um, it, somewhere mm-hmm. along the line. Um, probably this revival, um, probably more than once. And yet the hunger to get back into a theater and see something and feel like uh, things are getting back to normal is a very important thing for a lot of people. So uh, Tony Janicki adds that, um, that uh, Passover played Steppenwolf in June and July of 2017. We talked about the Lincoln center theater production of it. Uh, Also uh, uh, congratulations to Broadway press rep, Matt Ross, who uh, is the lead producer on, on this as well as being the press rep for it. And, and the um, author of this as well, uh, I might get her name wrong, Antoinette uh, Chinoin Nuwandu, uh, is the, she is the author and she's also one of the producers. It's uh, really wonderful to 
uh, see new people taking the helm here uh, and in a, in a producerial standpoint. Well, yes, uh, Matt Ross is a terrific guy, and I wish him well. Terrific guy. So Peter uh, alluded to um, at least Chicago coming back. We have a, a quick list of, of productions that we know of so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ain't Too Proud is going to come back o- October 16th, Chicago September 14th, as Peter mentioned. Diane is going to go into previews December 1st with an opening date of December 16th. Jagged Little Pill October 21st is coming back. Phantom of the Opera. Opera is going to October 22nd, coming back. Six, uh, as we talked about, September 17th with an opening October 3rd. Um, Clyde's. I don't know what Clyde's is. Do you guys know what Clyde's is? No. It, that's the uh, second that's, stage That's show. second stage. That's fall of 2021. Uh, Take Me Out, uh, spring of 2022. Uh, between Riverside and Crazy, Fall of Yeah, I was glad to see that. Yeah, that's really good. God, Stanley Gorgeous is such a great playwright, so I'm I'm very glad this mm. is happening. Very yeah. Glad. So uh, we're starting to get more and more information from uh, uh, from various uh, producing organizations that are telling us uh, how they're coming back, when they're coming back, uh, but. Peter, you are going to be in the theater this afternoon. This yes, afternoon. I will. Yes, yeah. I'll be at the Actors Temple, which I haven't been in since God shows up. But uh, anyway, um, the Housewives of Secaucus, what a drag is what it's called. And um, I think we know what it's going to be a parody of. And indeed, what a drag is not my comment on it, especially since I haven't seen it. But uh, more to the point, uh, it is a drag show. So we're going to see a lot of men up there. Um, and um, it, it sounds like it could be great fun under the circumstances. So uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Wow. So uh, as we start to get into it, Michael uh, not only is going to be seeing some other stuff, but uh, last couple of days you've seen a few different things at the West Bank. And where else was where was Lily's playing? I forget where Lily's was playing. Lily's is at the theater center. Uh, but yeah, first first off, uh, I saw Joe Iconis and his wife, Lauren Marcus, perform at the West Bank. And that was really, really wonderful. Um, they have such a, a great setup there at the West Bank. Um, they have... Uh, you know they have those those uh, what do you call them those those windows like those floor to ceiling mm-hmm. windows that can open for the whole the whole front of the restaurant uh you know so uh when weather permitting they can open those and the ventilation is really great and and social distancing is is fully observed and there are partitions between each table and and you really feel safe there but um they they've got wonderful talent they've they had joe and Lo, joe and lauren have been there s- several times billy stritch has started to perform there um you can go check the west bank cafe website and they have a, a full listing of the of the talent uh they, they have some people who play regularly week after week and then they introduce some new people as well and this is all uh, have i ha- if i haven't made it clear upstairs yeah, yeah. in the uh-huh. restaurant itself the, the laurie beachman theater is uh-huh. not yet uh-huh. yeah uh, I, uh, <laughs> but that's that's something to look forward to uh you, you know uh but yesterday uh yeah i got to see Lily's at the theater center formerly the snapple mm-hmm. theater center and let me just read um uh 
the the actually the uh, Broadway World article announcing this. It says the drama company NYC announced the live off-Broadway premiere of Lily's or the revival of a romantic drama. Uh, and it's written by Michelle Mar Bouchard with English translation by Linda Gaborio and directed by Andrew Benvenuti. This apparently is a, a, a Canadian play from the 80s, originally written in, in French, as I said. And it is playing at um, the theater center uh opens officially on may 17th uh i'm not sure how 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 long it's continuing uh it's one of as the as the article says it's one of the first new indoor theater productions of 2021 uh and it's i guess to all intents and purposes it is the first show that i've seen the first play that i've seen indoors with an audience since the pandemic started i i was lucky enough to see one of the food for thought shows but i think there were really uh uh there were really maybe five of us in the, in the audience that day one of whom was peter uh uh so so it wasn't quite the same. uh yes <laughs> Yesterday we had exactly yeah. Yesterday we um, I, I counted they had about forty people uh, and it was only their second preview. Uh, that theater it was in the Jerry Orbach Theater at the Theater Center. They have uh, two or three spaces there, but this was in the larger Jerry Orbach Theater where the Office uh, that the parody of the Office is is also playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and everyone uh, everyone in the audience wore masks throughout, uh, and there was definitely social distancing. There was lots of room uh, between people, and again, I felt completely safe. Um, the uh, more about the play uh, set against a backdrop of revenge, obsession, and love. Lily's tells the story of Simone Doucet, recently released from prison after serving a 30-year sentence for a crime he did not commit. He arranges a private meeting with his former school friend, Jean Bilodeau, now a powerful bishop. Simon and his friends, all former prison inmates, revisit the harrowing events that occurred during their final year at St. Sebastian's School for Boys. So, um, uh, I hope that sounds intriguing because it is. I, I thought that the play was uh, uh, somewhat flawed, a little talky, uh, but the acting, I have to say, was really quite excellent from everyone, from everyone, especially um, this fellow Hartley Parker, who plays, I guess, the central role of Simone Doucet. Uh, really extraordinary. And um, also... Uh, I'm just looking through the cast list here. Um, uh, yes, this fellow named uh, Grant Hale as Jean Bilodeau, really extraordinary actors. And but the whole cast—it's a—it's a—it's uh, an all-male cast. If I didn't mention that earlier, and uh, I—it you know—it was obviously very moving to be mm-hmm. <laughs> to be. I felt like it was the first mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. in many ways that I that I have seen since since the pandemic, and uh, more power to them for putting it up and for being so so uh, mindful of people being safe. Uh, even you know, even as we do emerge, hopefully from the pandemic, there's still sure. Uh, you know, it's not a free for all yet, and you can't just walk in and take your mask off and sit next to someone. But they're they're being very very careful about that, and I think that uh, if you're concerned about that, um, 
just know that they that they are very mindful. What's really interesting to me is there are 11 people in the cast. And I mean, the rule of thumb is you cannot make money off Broadway if it's uh, over nine. So um, this is really something they believe in it that much to uh, to have a cast of 11. So uh, that's a lot of people, um, Michael. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the description. And again, uh, I, I see the description in front of me here, too, from the press release. It doesn't sound like it's going to be all that large a cast. I mean, friends, yes, uh, all former prison inmates, it says here. But I would have never thought that there would have been like eight friends or <laughs> something like that. So. Uh, so, wow. Um, yes, I can see why it would be talky, but 11 people, everybody's got a lot to say. <laughs> this Hartley Parker, he was really quite extraordinary. Um, he's in his third year at NYU Tisch, uh, where he has trained at the Lee Strasberg Institute and Stone Street Studios. Uh, previous training includes the National Youth Theater of Great Britain, uh-huh. he's a Brit, and the Oxford School of Drama. Lily's is Hartley's U.S pro and off-Broadway debut, he would like to thank his family and friends for all their support. He, um, It was quite something because uh, I didn't realize he was a Brit until the last scene. Ah. <laughs> uh, he did a perfect American accent. I guess he, he uh, I, I saw him as I was leaving and I got to speak with him a little bit. And I guess he chose to do an American accent just because he didn't want to be the one obvious Brit, you know, in, in the and sound different for, from everyone else. Um, but and then in the last scene, he said Kant at one point. <laughs> I said, oh, what was that? <laughs> I say Kant. So <laughs> maybe he's from Boston. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're not quite the same I pronunciation. Uh, but uh, Elaine Page and I really differed on this when we talked about it, because I think the British performers are so good at American accents, while American uh, performers are not as good as uh, with British accents. And she felt exactly the opposite. Um, but um, I've seen a lot of uh, British actors um, in London, uh, the production of Once in a Lifetime. You'd never know they were British. Uh, you know, that's uh, Kaufman and Hart play. So, uh, so, so many times I've seen that right. happen. And, or, you know, we've all had this experience where we've um, seen a performance, be it on film or on stage, uh, and uh, we, we assume the, the person is American, then he or she gets an award. We hear the acceptance speech. We find out that it's not the case at all. <laughs> right. You know, so uh, the, those are pretty amazing things. But uh, uh, I'm very impressed, and I look forward to seeing this. I'll be attending a week from uh, Wednesday. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And he uh, he and uh, also I, I mentioned this Grant Hale, who plays Jean Bilodeau. Uh, he is a graduate of Marymount Manhattan College, um, and he has some other wonderful credits. But he uh, the, really the entire cast was excellent. I, as I said, I have some issues with the play itself, but it certainly was engaging. Uh, you should know it's an hour about an hour 45 with no intermission. Uh, so mm-hmm. just so you know that, but uh, uh, and, and it's done in, in the Jerry Orbach Theater on the, uh, actually kind of in front of the set of the office, but they have a, a, a curtain that mm-hmm. they draw across that set so you don't see that. And it's so the, so the playing space is very wide but very mm-hmm. narrow and that i think was a challenge for the director uh who did a excellent job considering um that mm-hmm. limitation there uh there, there are there are going to be some sideline issues perhaps depending on where you're sitting but it really it's it was i was so glad i went i, I only heard about it a few days ago and then i uh 
I got a ticket and I went and I really enjoyed hmm. it. So that is really uh, wonderful. We're starting to get back mm-hmm. to in-person theater mm-hmm. and uh, we will continue to do that over uh, – you know the, the coming weeks. It's I, I'm thrilled about it, and starting to get uh, yeah, you know press invitations to things that are not Zoom press invitations, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, wrap it up for today, Peter. Do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Yeah, a character in one of Richard Rogers' musicals has a boyfriend named Alfredo. What's the show, and what's the name of the character? In Do I Hear a Waltz, there's a marvelous song called No Understand, in which Giovanna, a maid at a pensione in Venice, is trying to learn English, but is doing so poorly that the owner tells her to stay in that night to study and no see Alfredo. Paul Whitty was the first to get it, followed by Tony Janicki, Joanna Abizi, Brigadude, and J. Aubrey Jones. This week's question. Many musicals, for one reason or another, wind up closing during their out-of-town tryouts and canceling their Broadway engagements. One hit musical had a producer, a director-choreographer, a book writer-lyricist, a composer, and the entire cast who had either previously worked on a show that closed out of town or would work on a show that closed out of town. Yes, the entire cast had this woeful experience. I want you to name the hit musical on which all of them worked, the names of those connected to it, and the shows with which they were connected that shuddered without braving Broadway. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, mm. tell, us <laughs> what, tell us what 100-year special you have for us today. Our musical moment for this week is Kelly O'Hara and Patrick Wilson singing Almost Like oh, Being Patrick. in Love from Brigadoon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this was uh, a cast album of a show that was presented at City Center in 2017. And then the cast album was released by Ghostlight Records in 2018. And as I've said repeatedly, this is was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. It was one of those cases where everything gelled. The cast was perfect. The direction and choreography by Christopher Wielden was superb. Um, Everything, everything was just great. And I was pleasantly surprised that it was preserved in a cast album uh, because, as we know, uh, for a long time now, not all of the city center shows by any means get cast albums. And in the case of Brigadoon, I thought it was less likely because there is a wonderful virtually mm-hmm. complete recording uh, that John mm-hmm. McGlynn c- uh, conducted s- some years ago with an excellent cast of Brent Barrett and Rebecca Luker, Judy Kay, etc. cetera. Uh, so I thought, well, they're, they're probably not going to do this. And uh, I, I don't know who came up with the money, if it was the Lerner estate or the Low estate or, or w- w- whatever happened. I'm so glad, so glad that it happened. Um, the, it just uh, so I urge you to listen to the track, but then after you listen to it, check the show notes for a video of Kelly and Patrick recording the number. Um, I think uh, 
back in the day, I think videos uh, and films of recording sessions were quite rare. Uh, I don't know of any before the company, the famous company documentary. I mean, there might have been some, but I, I think it was really, really quite rare. And I always think it's an extraordinary experience to, especially if it's a cast album that you've that you've listened to repeatedly and grown up with, and then suddenly to see the visual component of it uh, is is quite a thrilling experience. Uh, and this video is especially well done, I think, is in terms of the camera work and the and the sound quality, etc. So uh, enjoy the the track, and then. Uh, then please enjoy the video and enjoy both. I, I think that I think they, they're just, just wonderful stuff. Mm. All right. So uh, let's wrap it up for today on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia and our special correspondent, Tim Black out in Denver. Mm. I'd like to say uh, this is James Reno. Thank you for listening to Broadway videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. What a day this has been. What a rare mood I'm in. Why, it's almost like being in love. There's a smile on my face for the whole human race. Why, it's almost like being in love. All the music of life seems to be like a bell that is ringing for me And from the way that I feel When that bell starts to peal I would swear I was falling I could swear I was falling It's almost like being in love When we walked up the bridge Almost like being in love All the music of life seems to be Like a bell that is ringing for me And from the way that I feel When that bell starts to feel I would swear I was falling I could swear I was falling his heart